Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, with Tuesday's key election for the U.S. Senate seat in Georgia, we are going national, checking in about the state of that contest, which will determine how much breathing room Democrats have with their razor-thin majority in the Senate next year. Plus, a changing of the guard in Washington as Nancy Pelosi and most of her leadership team make way for a new generation of Democrats, including two from California, as Bakersfield Republican Kevin McCarthy whips votes to be the next speaker. And we're going to begin, though, with Jessica Taylor. She's the Senate and governor's editor for the nonpartisan and widely respected Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. She also covered politics and elections for five years with NPR. Before this, Jessica, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks for having me. You bet. Always nice to have a fellow public radio uh hack with us, you know. So we're big fans of public public media in general at at Cook. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we appreciate that. Well, you've described this runoff in Georgia with uh, Warnock uh, as deja vu from 2021. That, of course, was his first election when he faced off against uh, then the incumbent GOP Senator Kelly Loeffler. Um, How does this one compare with that in terms of the dynamic with Herschel Walker? Well, first of all, it's a month earlier than that January runoff was, which, you know, I'm very thankful for. It only put a slight damper on Thanksgiving and not the rest of the holidays. And I think probably Georgia voters will be happy to see just one month of TV ads instead of two. But the biggest difference, well, it's one race and not two. We had both Georgia Senate seats up in 2020. And this was a special election that Warnock won to fill um, the, the um, Johnny Isaacson seat who had stepped down due to health issues. But it's one, but but that two years ago, the control of the Senate was on the line. Like if Democrats wanted to win the Senate, they had to win both of those seats and it would give them 50-50 control. So that's not the case this year. And really Democrats were very worried that that would happen and that that would motivate Republicans, especially that that was sort of their nightmare scenario. But what happened, of course, on election night, and we found out in the ensuing days is that really the map, the Senate map that we looked at, really Democrats almost, they almost entirely ran the table on competitive seats. They have not lost an incumbent yet. Again, well, Warnock would be the last one that we would see. And they managed to flip the Pennsylvania Senate seat, an open seat to their favor. Now they did not defeat Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, a very close race, but fell short there. So right now they are at a net of one. So it matters. So they're guaranteed at least a 50-50 majority. So if uh, Raphael Warnock is defeated by um, his Republican challenger, football great Herschel Walker, then it will be another 50-50 Senate. But if but if Warnock hangs on, then they will have a 51-49 margin, which may not sound like a big difference, but it really is when you've had you know more centrist senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema holding up legislation this would mean that they have instead of ties on committees, they have uh, one one more seat on committees. So it could really make a big difference. And 
Looking at the 2024 map, it's a very difficult one for Democrats. They're defending 23 seats, including ones in states that uh, that Joe Biden lost by double digits, like Montana and West Virginia. So this is an important one as it stands, even with that. Um, and, and we're seeing a record number of people headed to the polls. But you mentioned mm-hmm. the shorter timeline, which I believe, you know, was something that Republicans in the legislature and the governor did in part to get potentially an advantage for the GOP, right? Um, Do we know anything yet about who's coming out and sort of what the Mm -hmm. state of play is when it comes to early voting and the truncated timeline? Yeah, so we've seen really heavy early voting. So there was a dispute over Democrats wanted to have Saturday voting, which would would have been the only Saturday polls would have been opened after the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, The Republicans tried to block that, but a court overturned it. So counties were given the option to be open on Saturdays. And a lot of counties crucially in the metro Atlanta area where the bulk of the vote will come from, they were open. We saw long lines, um, heavy interest um, on Monday or on Sunday and Sunday. And then this week um, continuing to see heavy lines. In fact, on Monday, they broke the record turnout for early voting uh, in a single day. And some of the people that have done analysis of the, of the breakdown, it is trending slightly more African-American than the general election numbers did in early voting and slightly more women. Now it's down a little bit among younger voters, but those first two, especially um, are good signs for for Raphael Warnock. And I really think, you know, Republicans have almost demonized early voting and absentee right. voting at this point. And, and they do this to their peril. Right. Because you if you rank if you rack up enough ahead of time and you have things that go wrong on election day, you know, we had storms in the West on election day, and that could have cost them the Nevada Senate Senate race, perhaps. So you know it's it behooves Republicans to try to embrace this. But as of now, you still have, of course, the most most prominent voice in the party, former President Donald Trump, throwing doubt yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You mentioned that these early votes seem to be more uh, African American than was in the general. We have two African American candidates, Herschel Walker yeah. and uh, Reverend Warnock. Uh, and then there was a New York Times article today that showed overall, including in Georgia, but throughout the country, black turnout was down in November. Mm-hmm. So what are Democrats or Republicans doing to to reverse that? I mean, you're seeing Warnock target heavy African-American areas and black media and different things. And you're right. This is a unique race because we have two African-American candidates. That's not something we typically see. I'm not sure if we've ever seen especially before. in the South. Yeah, exactly. In the South, especially um, I guess we, we have with with Obama, but um, uh, when his Senate races. But um yeah, it's just um, he needs black voters to come out. I mean, that's the core of the Democratic Party, especially in Atlanta. But the big warning sign for for uh, Walker is that he's so far underperformed the other Republicans on the ballot, including Governor Brian Kemp, who won a fairly easy reelection in a rematch with Stacey Abrams, his 2018 competitor, who came very close, that there is clearly a lack of enthusiasm for Walker among independents and among, I think, those suburban women, especially. And we've seen some of Warnock's ads really try to target them. I thought one particularly good one he had features a suburban woman, middle age, saying she's voted for Republicans all her life. She voted for Kemp, but she's like, I just don't trust Herschel Walker. Like He lies and I, I just don't think he's qualified for the job. 
And I think this is what he's hammering home because again, these people, if they reluctantly voted for, for Walker, even if they skipped it all together, are they going to come back out in what it will be a lower turnout election where that's the only thing on the ballot. I think that I think Republicans have a real problem in motivating people to come out. And it's because of the type of candidate Herschel Walker was. And we saw across the ballot already that candidates with these problems that were endorsed by Trump that had substantial baggage. I mean, Herschel Walker has about a football field of baggage behind him um, that they that voters were opting against them, particularly independent voters. Now, I think the race is still going to be close. We're still rating as a toss up. I mean, it was just decided by uh, uh, one percentage point last time. Of course, Warnock was key uh, right under 50 percent. Um, but we are seeing in the polling continue to be a large split of independence toward Warnock. And that's really key. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the former president. He has maybe surprisingly heated calls to largely stay out of this runoff. Um, but clearly he did not stay out of them in terms broadly. And I'm wondering kind of what your big picture takeaways are nationally. You know, here in California, we were out on the trail with multiple in multiple uh, congressional uh, districts that nothing changed like nothing flipped here you know and and yet and yet obviously congress power of congress did so what what are your kind of big takeaways well at least from the senate landscape it clearly shows me that candidates matter i mean really senate elections were becoming more parliamentary in nature and really i i believed actually that voters would be choosing a party and not necessarily a candidate especially when we looked all of the other historic indicators that we had, given that the president's party typically loses seats in the House and in the Senate. Um, You look at where the economy was, where Biden's approval rating was. But I go back to what I was hearing in a lot of focus groups of swing voters. And it was just that they saw many of these candidates um, not to be not palatable to them. You know, you had Blake Masters in Arizona that had, you know, written things praising the Unabomber and Hitler. Like they could recite those things. They knew that. And they just felt like it was disqualifying. And while Trump is not going there, he actually hadn't, didn't campaign super close to the election for, for Walker anyway, really. And, you know, he's no fan of Brian Kemp necessarily. Um, they, you do see Republicans in the state, they're leaning far more on Brian Kemp. Um, he's he has campaigned with Walker. They sort of uh, they, they didn't really campaign together during the election, which is is noteworthy, though there is an issue there with uh, campaign coordination in state versus federal races. Um, and they're using, uh, you know, his field program that was far superior to uh, to Walker's as well. But I still think it comes down to candidate. Like you can't just put plop this in and this candidate is going to win because when you had both of them on the ballot, he underperformed by more than 200,000 votes. Jessica Taylor with the Cook Political Report. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll be looking forward to your reporting between now and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of next week. Uh, Probably going to be another tight one. It's going to be counting quickly. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much. All right. We're going to turn now to Raul Bali. He's a politics reporter for WABE in Atlanta, also co-host of the Georgia Votes 2022 podcast. And he's joining us from a rally for Herschel Walker. That's the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Woodstock, Georgia. Hey there. Hey. So tell us a little bit about where you are and uh, what you're expecting at this rally. So this is one of the northern uh, suburbs of Atlanta, very Republican area. And we expect Herschel Walker to do what he's been doing up until the general election and since the general election, which is focusing on 
you know, red meat, Republican issues. He's really not tried to turn for the center. He's really been focusing on his base voters in this runoff. And I mean, do you have any sense from talking to folks? Obviously, people going to a rally like that are going to be Walker supporters. But we saw, you know, Brian Kemp outperform Herschel Walker so significantly. Do you have any sense about whether some Republicans are just going to stay home? There's a, there is absolutely the possibility that there could be some Republicans that stay home. You know, we've been trying to reach out to those voters and find those voters of uh, that, you know, those 200,000 that voted for Brian Kemp for governor uh, and did not vote for Herschel Walker, his fellow Republican in the U.S. Senate race. And that is one of the big questions is what will those voters do now? One of the big efforts is Governor Brian Kemp has now come full force to support Mm -hmm. Herschel Walker with commercials, with a campaign stop already. And so that's that's part of this effort. And also the use of Brian Kemp's pretty significant campaign machine, including data operations and his door knockers. So you see the governor now, you know, with his campaign done, going full force for Walker. You saw some criticism recently of some Republicans who are concerned that Herschel Walker has been kind of quiet. He was off the campaign trail for the holiday, uh, which was not the case for Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock. Uh, is this sort of, uh, you know, something he's been sort of pushed into doing or and why was he absent anyway? You know, the only thing that we had heard was there was a birthday party, uh, of, you know, for for some of his family. That there was also Thanksgiving, but no real explanation. You know, we're not getting a lot. Um, as reporters from uh, the Walker campaign. What we do get from the Walker campaign generally are responses on Twitter, whether it's from his campaign manager or, or other staffers. Yeah, there's been concern fr- about from Republicans about the Walker campaign, not just, you know, being off the trail for a few days around Thanksgiving, but there's just other things and, you know, you know, other approaches and you know, how they answer questions. There's been a lot of questions around the Walker campaign, especially in a state where all the other statewide candidates won without a runoff. I mean, yeah, I I do wonder, though, if, you know, when you see Reverend Warnock out there on the campaign trail, um, he seems to be really exciting the base. We've seen President Obama come out, campaign for him. Is there more excitement on the Democratic side, or is it hard to tell still? You know, when you go to rallies on either side, as you said, you know, these are these are the most hardcore supporters, and, and you do see the energy on both sides. The question is, What's going on at the polls? Where are you seeing, you know, the longer lines or the shorter lines? Right now, we've been seeing longer lines in Democratic-leaning areas. That doesn't mean there's not a, you know, a large turnout in the more rural and suburban parts of Atlanta that support Republican candidates. So, you know, it, for, you know a lot of this is us trying to read the tea leaves mm-hmm. and figure out what's going on. One of the interesting tea leaves is you've had 40,000 voters who've already cast ballots who didn't vote in November, but they've showed up for the runoff. And, and wow. you know, that's one of the groups of people we're trying to figure out. Who are these people? Right, who that's are kind they? of wild. Where, yeah. where, where, where were you? <laughs> um, I'm wondering, you know, Trump himself has not, he's kind of laid low. He has not made any presence known in the state. He's uh, apparently doing some video thing with Herschel Walker. But I'm wondering if, you're, if you've heard from any pro-Trump voters who wish the former president was more of a presence in this campaign. I think if we hear that, that would be after this runoff. 
And, you know, it, you know, if there is, if he loses and they're second guessing, yes, you've heard from some, you know, uh, uh, Trump supporters who wish that he was here. But you know what? When you go to a Herschel Walker rally like the one I'm about to go to, you do see, you know, the MAGA hats. You do see the Trump hats. So, you know, his support is there. And even though he's not stepped foot in this state since March. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned that this is a truncated um time frame in terms of voting four weeks compared to eight eight or nine in the last two years ago, um, because we never stop having elections, it seems. Um, any impact uh, that you're hearing directly from voters? Like, is that more challenging? People seem to be turning out, but obviously there's so much less time that, you know, it, it still could be lower numbers. The issue is because this runoff is so much shorter and early voting is a week and just a handful of days. That's why you're seeing these lines. It's such a condensed period for people to vote. And and absolutely, I've heard it not only from voters out there, but even people in my own life of when am I going to show up to vote? What? How am I going to work around these long lines? Because you're seeing, you know, one to two hour lines, depending. I went really early Sunday morning and, and was just fine because I was really one of the first people there. Uh, but then you had my coworker. Sam Greenglass, who took almost two and a half hours to vote today. So those are the decisions yeah. people are having to make. Yeah. And is is that more true in precincts where there are a lot of people of color? Because, you know, Democrats, of course, were unhappy with some of these changes to the voting laws that raised the barrier to voting, made it harder to vote. Um, you know, is there, effect, is there a disproportionate effect of that? The reality is the bigger counties in Georgia are Democratic-leaning. And those are heavily counties of color. That's just the reality of that's how many more voters are trying to vote uh, in those bigger areas, whereas the smaller, more rural parts of Georgia, they're more Republican leaning and they're not going to face kind of those challenges. They're not going to have as many voting locations. But, uh, you know, what you're seeing here, for example, in the Atlanta area uh, and seeing in some of the smaller cities is you are seeing lines because. Uh, you, again, it's a condensed uh, voting schedule. Yeah. All right. Just a few seconds left here. What are you going to be watching the most on Election Day? If we have long lines again, if if mm-hmm. on Election Day itself, you know, because you're going into this Election Day versus what happened in November, there's still going to be a lot more people who hadn't voted yet. And the question is, is there a possibility you're going to see longer lines or longer waits on Election Day? Or oh. weather. Always looking for weather. <laughs> All right. Well, and we'll weather. be hearing about it, uh, I'm sure, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, as those votes are counted. It seems to take a long time. But uh, that is Democracy. Raul Bally reporting from uh, a rally uh, about to happen for Herschel Walker. He's with uh, WABE in Atlanta. And uh, good luck. Stay safe. And uh, we'll look forward to more of your reporting between now and Tuesday. Sounds good. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by longtime Pelosi watcher Mark Sandalow. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking.
Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, here with Marisa Lagos. And we continue our post-election analysis with a look at the changing faces of leadership in the House. Joining us for that is Mark Sandalo of the University of California's D.C. Center in Washington. He's also the author of Madam Speaker, a biography of Nancy Pelosi. Mark, welcome to The Breakdown. Good to be with you guys. So, Nancy Pelosi, big picture thoughts, first of all, on her legacy. Uh, There was a lot of speculation about uh, how she would leave leadership. Now those answers have been given. Uh, But what are your thoughts about her her two terms as speaker and her legacy there? Well, in terms of legacy, I mean, it's not only in San Francisco. There will be a Pelosi building, certainly in Washington. There's a Rayburn building now and a Longworth building named after famous speakers. Republicans are going to hate it. The same way the Democrats hated it when they named National Airport across the Potomac Reagan Airport. But I mean, she is historic by any measure. I mean, arguably the most powerful speaker in a century since people like Longworth. Uh, but the fact that she did it as a woman was obviously extraordinarily, uh, you know, remarkable. And I always go back to like when you when you, when you think of people like Tip O'Neill or Sam Rayburn at age 37, one of them, Rayburn, was already been elected four times to the House, and he had been uh, head of the Texas House of Representatives. Tip O'Neill up in Massachusetts at age 37, he was already Speaker of the Massachusetts House. Nancy Pelosi, when she was 37, was at home with a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 6-year-old. That is a very different story than anyone else, anyone else in Washington can tell. It makes my head hurt thinking about that time, and it seems like... The, the five kids would have been easier in some ways than the yeah. 435 Couldn't wait to members. get out of the house. Um, That's what she always said. Yeah, <laughs> she's told us that too. But I'm wondering, I mean, I, I heard that you were a little surprised by the fact that she decided to step down from leadership the way, when she did and how she did. Um, and I think we've all been talking in our newsroom for years about what's going to happen. She had made this promise to step down at the end of this you know cycle from leadership. I think a lot of us didn't expect she would want to stick around and, and still be in Congress, not as leader. But she's done it before. And, and that's the reason, you know, after Democrats lost the majority in 2010, she was the first speaker since Sam Rayburn to say, I'm going to stick around. And she did that because she had things that she still wanted to do. Uh, that's still the case. I mean, they're, they're, Kevin McCarthy, as you guys have just been talking about, is going to have a very thin majority in the House. That means he's going to have to reach across the aisle to work with Democrats. And I think most people in Washington believe nobody is better equipped to maximize the Democratic advantage if Kevin McCarthy comes knocking than Nancy Pelosi. But is, that's going to be awkward for the new guy, right? Yeah, <laughs> Hakeem Jeffries off, uh, is like... going to be, you know, the minority leader there. Um, do you think in her heart of hearts she would have liked to stick around? She did cut this deal with progressives a few years ago to leave at this time. I've got no doubt, but, you know, not not that I have any inside information, but Pelosi has always felt that she can do this better than anybody else. And as much as all politicians, I suppose, feel that way, and many people in other professions feel that way, I mean, there's, there's good evidence to support that. She's raised more money than virtually any Democrat in history. She's led them to victories that they never had before. Um, you know, she's something that Washington had never seen. And that was a woman who was essentially a smoke-filled room, backroom politician, who was a brilliant tactician. 
And, you know, even going into this last election, no one took her seriously when she said Democrats are not going to do badly. We won't even keep our majority. They didn't keep their majority, but they did better than any of the public pundits said. Yeah, we want to get to McCarthy in a little bit, but I do want to ask, there is no love lost between Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, both Californians. Do you think her decision to stick around has anything to do with torturing him? Yeah, (laughs) like being a thorn in his side. Uh, you know, I, I, so partly, and, and again, this is all speculation, partly when we're talking about Hakeem Jeffries, I mean, I do think she sees herself as a mentor. I mean, this was her handpicked person. She endorsed him. So I think part of it is she feels like she can be of great help to him. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's something very cynical to me about running for re-election, losing your leadership post, and then saying to the people of San Francisco, thanks for voting for me for another two years, but nah, it's not worth it anymore, so I'm going to step down. You guys can pay for a special election. And she may have wanted to avoid that. And then on a more selfish possibility, it's conceivable, and I certainly don't know any inside information on this, people talking about her daughter, Alexandra, wanting to run. Christine. Christine. I'm sorry, Christine. Alexandra is the (laughs) The filmmaker. uh, The filmmaker, yeah. Filmmaker. Whereas a film about her document the whole thing. (laughs) And if Christine were to run, there are some people who assume that Pelosi will time her departure in a way that maximizes Christine's chances. Who knows? But you don't think she's thinking about Kevin that much? You know, I. N- he's not no. as much I fun mean, to torture uh, as Trump I mean, was. Well, the word know. she used for him is he's a moron. <laughs> <laughs> we can leave it there. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about Kevin McCarthy. Uh, what is he facing? I mean, he obviously has a even a smaller, probably a smaller majority than the Democrats had, or roughly the same, um, six or seven seats. Uh, what does he face? I mean, can he? How big of a struggle? First of all, is it going to be for him to get enough votes to become speaker? Uh, it's a big struggle because he's going to need, because every Democrat will vote against him. So he needs to get all but, you know, a couple of Republicans and they're already all, but a a couple of Republicans have said they're absolutely not going to vote for him. Um, You never really believe that. I mean, his problem is, and Pelosi had this problem too. There are some people who are way off the deep end in the Republican party on the right. I mean, you know, you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia who blames California wildfires on laser beams uh, orchestrated by the Rothschild family. You can't deal rationally with people like that. Now she actually is gonna vote for her. I, I believe she's endorsed him. And I know that Laura Boebert, another one has endorsed him, but there are others, uh, Matt Gates in Florida who says absolutely he will not vote. He's a Republican uh, for McCarthy. So chances are he pulls it off. But, but, but he's going to be emboldened to whoever votes for him. And what it means is, I mean, Republicans weren't going to pass sweeping legislation. They don't have the Senate. They don't have the presidency. They can't. Or the interest, they've really. Got, yes. They, but they have to pass a budget. There are some other basic things they have to do or government can't operate. He's very likely going to need Democratic votes to do the basic functioning of the House. That's going to be interesting to see how that works. Well, and how does that work? Because doesn't that then sour the hard right on him if he goes looking for those votes? And, you know, who are and they're really interested in the hard right that is investigating the Biden administration. They've talked about investigating Pelosi. I mean, it it seems to me that Democrats wouldn't have a lot of reason to play ball with McCarthy either. So where does that leave him? Well, I mean, there are certainly people, and I say this of Republicans and Democrats, who, who look beyond party affiliation. I mean, there's certain things like passing a budget, which if it doesn't happen, the country pays a serious price. Raising the debt ceiling is another thing. It's just one of those functions they have to do. And, and you always can convince some people that that's more important than party. But again, this is where we're going to find out how good Nancy Pelosi was. 
because Pelosi had people on her fringe, too, who absolutely refused to vote. I mean, Barbara Lee refused to vote for a defense budget her entire time in Congress because she's opposed to the military spending. That makes it very difficult to pass a federal budget when the margin is small. Pelosi oh, you'd think Barbara Lee would have been there for Pelosi if she needed the vote. Well, so that's exactly it, Scott. I mean, and, and, and indeed, when Nancy Pelosi needed, she could go to people like Lee and say, look, you know my heart. You know my district. I'm as liberal, almost maybe, as you are. You've <laughs> got to trust me on this. Pragmatism needs to win out here. I don't know whether or not McCarthy has that kind of credibility with with his, the right wing of his party. What is it that the Freedom Caucus, the most extreme, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, although there aren't a lot of her, but, you know, the Jim others, Jordan's. Jim Jordan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what is it about McCarthy they don't like or trust? Right. He was close to Trump or sometimes he was, yeah, you know, like Kevin. He's moved right and rightward. What has he well, not I mean, done partly, or done? Look at what he said about January 6th. You know, he, his initial reaction, because clearly he was scared when he listened to what he said that day, was this is this is Trump's this is Trump's fault. We can't you know, this is a problem. And then, you know, uh, two days later, he's talking about how Trump's not to blame. And, you know, it suggests a more of a cravenness than. So I think people don't trust him because they see him as sort of a typical Paul who will say whatever is needed to be said. He also is, and we can say the same when we start talking about Hakeem Jeffries, to be the leader, you have to be reasonable. You cannot take an extreme position because you don't get anywhere. And extreme people on the extremes get very frustrated at that. Yeah. Uh, talking of Hakeem Jeffries, he's the newly elected Democratic leader. Tell us a little bit about him. I mean, we're so used to in San Francisco having Pelosi as leader for so long. Will he, do you think, sort of lead in her image? Is he a very different type of, you know, sort of tactical politician? So the things I have heard, I mean, it's amazing. I heard uh, uh, Reverend Reverend Al Sharpton, who knows Jeffries well because they're both New Yorkers. Uh, he says his heart is progressive but his style is moderate. That's exactly what they say about Nancy Pelosi. Absolutely. It's like he is a lefty, but he knows he has to govern from the center. Now, whether or not that means he'll be successful, we'll find out. So remember to get to where he is now. Um, I guess it was four years ago. He beat out to become to get to Democratic leadership. He beat out Barbara Lee. That was to become chair of the Democratic caucus. That left a sour taste in a lot of progressives' mouth. Mouse. Um, him and AOC. So AOC represents the district just north of him in New York City. Uh, they have not gotten along. She wants somebody who's much more bombastic. And it goes back to this fascinating, I mean, you all, well, you all, uh, some of you will remember, <laughs> um, uh, you know, Harry Britt, who mm -hmm. was uh, um, uh, Harvey Milk's protege, who served on the Board of Supervisors, who ran against Pelosi back in 1987, the only serious challenge she ever had. Britt always contended that if you come from a progressive district like San Francisco, you don't play the role of the moderate, reasonable person. You go out there and you push the extreme, push the envelope so that the left then can move to the left without seeming so crazy. And that was his view. Pelosi obviously had a very, very different tack. Yeah, I'm thinking um, Harry Britt never would have been speaker if he had won that race. 
<laughs> which he acknowledges completely. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, let me um, let me ask you though about another uh, another Californian who was just elected to the leadership team from the Democratic Party, and that is Pete Aguilar from Redlands, the former mayor of Redlands. He's forty three years old, um, Latino, January sixth committee member. He was on the January sixth committee. We talked with him about that a few months ago. Like, what do you? What's your take on him? He's young. He's obviously a rising star in the party. So, I mean, to be truthful, I can't tell you a whole lot about his you know, legislative record. I know that people like him a lot on Capitol Hill. So he gets along with a bunch of different sides. Um, there obviously is um, a diversity issue that's really important here. Um, with, with his election, there will be no white men in the Democratic leadership anymore. And, you know, this, the Democratic Party, if only white men voted, the last time... Well, let me put it this way. The last time white people elected a Democratic president was 1964 and Lyndon Johnson. So without women votes, without minority votes, the Democratic Party doesn't exist. And, you know, obviously capturing Latinos, African-Americans, as Jeffries is, uh, women who and there's a, the woman, the new whip will be a woman, uh, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts. Uh, you know, these are going to be absolutely critical if Democrats want to win elections. And yet they're all from coastal liberal states and different kind of diversity. Yeah. I, I wonder if that could have any impact. Pete Buttigieg can't be everywhere. You know? <laughs> He's uh, certainly trying, Durbin. though. <laughs> um, no, you and, and it, I mean, it's true. Obviously, you have pockets. I mean, Democrats represent urban America at this point. There's there's no doubt about it. So, I mean, yes, you could have people. I'm thinking where in you know, Chicago, Detroit, uh, New Orleans. There are other places that aren't on the same coast that we're talking about. But these are big urban areas because more and more we're seeing an urban rural divide in Congress. Looking ahead to the new Congress, and of course, you know, one of the things Freedom Caucus wants that McCarthy seems more than happy to give them is hearings on things, investigations into the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, uh, into, you know, Merrick Garland, more generally, President Biden, Hunter Biden. How is that going to go over, do you think, in the country, you know, beyond the Republican caucus in the House? So, I mean, what they, they had when they were in control, I think they had five hearings on Benghazi to prove that Hillary Clinton somehow is at fault. And e even the Republicans who went after her basically concluded they really couldn't pin anything on her. If they don't find anything, they're going to look like fools. Um, but, but of course, they'll be in the eye of the beholder. Their base is going to love it, which is why somebody like Jim Jordan can push it, because it's not going to hurt him in rural Ohio, which is where he needs his votes. You know, nationally, and again, you know, I say this from my, you know, I, I live on the East Coast. I talk you know, with West Coast media. Um, so, so obviously I have a different, you know, view of this. It seems to me that investigating an insurrection on January 6th is of more national concern than what's on the president's son's laptop. Um, if it turns out that there are big national security secrets that, that Hunter Biden was hiding, yeah, that's a problem. It seems like this is exactly the kind of thing where Republicans shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that never stopped them before. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, I think the Benghazi hearings is what tripped up Kevin McCarthy for students of history may remember he was bragging that it brought down Hillary Clinton's polling numbers, which it did, uh, but also not seen as a brilliant move. All right. We're going to let you go. That is all for us. Mark Sandalo with the UC Center in D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ed. And that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. 
Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to the Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, available wherever you get your podcasts. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.